Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Next up, we're talking about the increasingly heated debate in Ukraine over holding a presidential election amidst the ongoing war. Abby, it's a complex issue, isn't it? Absolutely, Michael. The country's current martial law prohibits any elections, but there's a growing concern that a vote could distract from their fight for survival against Russia. And it's not just an internal debate, right? The U.S. is playing quite a role in this. Indeed. Some U.S. politicians, particularly within the Republican Party, are pushing the discussion about Ukrainian elections. They're using the issue to justify their demand to block military aid to Ukraine. And while many Republicans support Ukraine, there's a faction within the party using this as a political tool against Ukraine during the upcoming U.S. presidential elections. Exactly. And Ukraine's President Zelensky is aware of this growing rhetoric from the U.S. That's a concern because the U.S. is Ukraine's main ally, and its military aid is crucial in fighting off Russia's invasion. So he's in a bit of a bind. On one hand, he's got to address this issue to maintain U.S. support. On the other, he's dealing with domestic backlash over the idea of holding elections during wartime. And that's not even considering the logistical challenges of holding an election during a war. Security, a displaced population, damaged infrastructure, and a lack of funding, just to name a few. Right. And Zelensky has been somewhat ambiguous in his statements about the possibility of holding elections. That sparked rumors and speculation domestically, leading some politicians to announce plans to run for the presidency. Zelensky did attempt to quell the rumors by stating that it is not the right time for elections. But the question remains, when will Ukraine have elections? Well, according to Alina Zagoruyko, an MP and the head of the Parliamentary Subcommittee on Elections and Referendums, Zelensky will remain as a legitimate president even after his term expires next spring. But if the war continues, at some point they may need to explore possibilities of holding elections even in such conditions. And that's a whole other can of worms. Right. And it's not just about the timing, but also the practicalities. Many towns are in ruins, the population is displaced, and the election infrastructure is destroyed. And then there's the question of the voting process itself. They need to consider alternative ways of voting, like postal voting or online, but any changes would require legislative amendments, and that's a whole other debate. So, it's a complex issue with no easy solutions. And the longer the war drags on, the harder it will be to maintain consensus, especially with the influence of politics in Ukraine's Western partners. From the complex political landscape of Ukraine, we now turn our attention to another region, grappling with its own set of challenges. We're shifting our focus to Southeast Asia, specifically Myanmar where a coalition of armed militias appear to be making significant strides against the entrenched military government. Stay tuned as we delve into this unfolding situation. Abby, let's pivot to Myanmar. It seems there's a coalition of ethnic armed militias, the Three Brotherhood Alliance, making headway against the military government. Yes, Michael. This could be a turning point for Myanmar, a country that's been under military rule for most of its history. The alliance's recent offensive in the eastern Shan state has been quite successful. They've managed to capture several government military installations near the Chinese border. But let's not forget, the Tatmadaw, or the military junta, still has more firepower. True, 
but the Alliance's successes have sparked hope. They've cut off about 40% of the Tatmadaw's land access to China, taken over military installations, border crossings, towns, and transit routes. Plus, they've caused government troops to defect in large numbers. That's a significant blow to the military. And it's not just the armed groups. Civil society resistance is also working toward a new kind of democratic grassroots governance model. Exactly, Michael. The goal is to prevent violent military governments in the future. But it's not just about military success. The resistance's success is also due to the military's weakness. Morale is low, defections are high, and... They're stretched thin, right? Despite superior artillery and air dominance, they don't have the manpower or strategy to mount an effective defense or offensive. That's right. But it's also about a potential political revolution. There's a desire to break away from the old exclusive governance structures. The Anug has adopted the idea of an intersectional revolution and the need to incorporate minorities into a future democratic federal state. And that's a significant shift. But it's not just about the armed groups. Civil society groups and public support have also played a crucial part in the successful military operation. They're committed to the end of military rule and a potential democratic future. Absolutely, Michael. But there's a long way to go. Even if the revolutionary forces gain control of the country, building an inclusive democratic state from one that's been oppressed for decades will be a struggle. From the struggles of a nation fighting for democracy, we now turn our attention to a different kind of struggle. This time, we delve into the vibrant and often misunderstood world of youth subculture. Let's journey from the battlefields of Myanmar to the pulsating beats and unique rhythms of Malay youth culture. Abby, we're shifting gears a bit and diving into the fascinating world of Malay youth subculture. Ah, you're referring to the recent Skinheads gig that was attended by the Eamon Research Team. Exactly. It's interesting to see how these young working-class Malays are navigating through life, especially in a society that often stigmatizes them. Yes, and it's not just about music or fashion. It's a movement, a way of life. You know, Michael, it's fascinating how these gigs are not just about moshing and screaming. They actually paused for Zohor and Asar, the afternoon prayers. That's a unique blend of tradition and rebellion, isn't it? But Abby, it seems there's a bit of a generational divide with older skinheads criticizing younger ones for participating in gigs for the gram or TikTok. Indeed, Michael. But let's not forget that for many, the punk scene is an outlet, a means of healing. And while they might be dismissive of politics, there's a clear sentiment that the political institution has failed them. Right, it seems like there's a sense of disillusionment. But despite that, they expressed a preference for the administration during Najib Razak and Mohidin Yassin's time, citing benefits like brim and housing allowances. Yes, it's clear that respect and mutual understanding are key values for them. They acknowledge the need for compromise in a multicultural community and believe that most ethnic religious tensions are politically amplified. That's a very mature perspective. But Abby, I can't help but wonder if this mirrors the ideals of the UK skinheads, where the movement was about working-class pride and traditional values. There are certainly similarities, Michael. But unlike the UK skinheads, who were known for fascism and street violence, these Malaysian skinheads stress respect and love for multiculturalism. That's commendable. But it seems they're also resigned to their economic status, accepting that they may never reach the middle class. 
Yes, and it's unfortunate that this group often faces sneers and dismissive attitudes from more educated and successful Malays. They may not represent all Malays, but their voices are part of the Malay Youth Collective. They also vote, and they certainly deserve to be heard. That's a powerful point, Abby. And it's interesting to note the language elitism among the Malays themselves with scorn for those who speak less than acceptable English or Malay. Absolutely, Michael. It's a complex issue with no easy solutions. But one thing's for sure. These young Malays are finding their own ways to navigate through it all, and their voices matter. From the vibrant, rebellious subcultures of Malaysia, we now turn our gaze to the political landscape of Europe. A seismic shift has occurred in the Netherlands, where the far right is gaining significant ground. Let's delve into this surprising development and its potential implications for Dutch society and beyond. Abby, let's talk about the recent political earthquake in the Netherlands. Far-right politician Geert Wilders, often compared to Donald Trump, has led his PVV Freedom Party to a major victory in the general elections. That's right, Michael. It's quite a shocker. Wilder's party won 37 seats out of 150, beating all predictions. It's a notable increase from the last election where they secured fewer seats. This puts them well ahead of other alliances and parties, including the Conservative People's Party for Freedom and Democracy. This certainly puts Wilders in a powerful position, but he's now faced with the difficult task of forming a government. He'll need to convince other parties to join him, which might not be an easy task given his far-right stance. Indeed, Michael. Wilders, who is known for his anti-immigration and anti-EU policies, has spent most of his political life on the fringe, but he's managed to tap into a block of anti-immigrant Eurosceptic voters who were looking for a champion. And let's not forget, he's been a controversial figure, to say the least. He's been convicted for inciting hate speech, and his opinions once even got him banned from entering the UK. He's also been living under police protection for almost two decades due to death threats. Yet, it seems his anti-Islam policies and his stance against the EU, which led to the idea of Nexit, did not deter voters. In fact, his party scored major gains in Parliament in 2010, and he even served as a member of the European Parliament. And in an interesting twist, Wilders somewhat softened his anti-Islam and anti-EU stance in the final weeks of his campaign. He promised to be a prime minister for all Dutch people and focused on issues such as the cost of living crisis. This strategy seems to have paid off. Despite his softer campaign rhetoric, the PVV's manifesto remains unchanged. It calls for a ban on Islamic schools, Qurans, and mosques, and seeks a reduction in asylum and immigration to the Netherlands. It also advocates for a sovereign Netherlands, in charge of its own currency, borders, and rules. It's clear that Wilder's victory represents a significant shift in Dutch politics. It will be interesting to see how this plays out in the coming months and years, and what impact it will have on the EU and the broader international community. Absolutely, Michael. This is a story we'll be watching closely. And it's a reminder that the rise of far-right politics is not just an American phenomenon, but something that's happening in various parts of the world.